six weeks later, Henry reminded me of that. And he's like, yeah, you know, by the way, my wife said, thanks. Oh, why? Because, you know, if you hadn't been such an ass that we would have been wandering around on corridor four and we probably would have been hurt or killed. Take a girl and a guy and they fall madly in love and form a family. Sprinkle in some counseling degrees and a doctorate, a dream of transforming relationships as we know it. And 20 years later, we give you power couple, Dr. Ray and Jean Ketkodian. And this is their podcast, Couples Synergy. Welcome back to another episode of Couples Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean. I'm Dr. Ray. And I'm Jean. And this is our podcast about love, marriage, and relationships. Please check us out online on our Facebook page and Instagram at Couples Synergy or our website, couplesynergy.com, which just got a new facelift. Yeah, and be sure to subscribe to our podcast or send us any suggestions on topics you'd like to hear more about. And now on to Couples Synergy, an in-depth look at love, marriage, and relationships, where we bring you our experience helping thousands of couples transform their relationships for nearly 20 years. You know, everyone says you need to work on a relationship, but nobody teaches us how. So we've created this podcast to teach what they can do to create the relationship they've always dreamed of with the partner they fell in love with. We'd like to welcome today's guest, retired Lieutenant Colonel Ryan Yantis of Silver Leaf Leadership Communication. He brings more than 30 years of business, military, government, and nonprofit experiences to partners, clients, and friends to develop leaders who deliver results. As a survivor of the 9-11 Pentagon attack, he has personal experience in providing transformational leadership after the attack and throughout till today. He is a sought-after speaker about leadership service and his 9-11 Pentagon experiences, and we are very excited to have him as an expert guest today on Couple Synergy. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Thank you, Gene. So maybe we can start out a little bit about you telling us a little bit about yourself. How old are you? And, you know, tell us a little bit about Silver Leaf Leadership Communication. Um, I'm 59 years young. I'm on that second exciting phase of life after military service. I founded Silver Leaf in uh, 2016 as a means of uh, formalizing my my desire to help people with uh, leadership training and excellence. I had worked in downtown Chicago after I retired from the Army in nonprofit leadership and working at the state of Illinois for the Department of Veterans Affairs. And one of the things that I noticed was there's a big disconnect between the quality of leadership that's needed in the civilian sector and what was passing as leadership. And I, I thought there has to be a better way. Started Silverleaf. Through them, I I learned about Academy Leadership, which is a consortium out of Florida of retired and former military officers. Their litmus there is you have to be a successful military leader with a good record, and you have to be a proven business leader with a good record, and then go through their rigorous training and certification process to help deliver really high-quality, effective military leadership that is business applicable and business proven. And Academy Leadership's been in business for 20 years, delivering services to audiences worldwide. And I'm proud to be part of that operation. That is wonderful. There's a lot of great work there. And I imagine your military experience really helps with the work that you're doing. I hope it does. (laughs) How did you decide to join the military? Well, 
I went to uh, University of Missouri on a swimming scholarship in 1979. And as part of the late enrollment process, I had to go through those lines where you got the IBM cards and, and I had my cards for my 12 hours of class. And they said, nope, you have to take a PE class. And, and back then I was not so easy going. I was stubborn. I said, no, I'm a swimmer. I'm not going to, you know, I swim three hours a day. I'm not doing PE. No, freshman must take a PE class. <laughs> so the deal was struck that there's this map reading class and, you know, you don't have to change your schedule. You can drop a one hour class, pick up this one hour map reading class and it counts as a PE class. Will you do it? Sure. It's Army ROTC. Will you do it? <laughs> sure. So you're looking at you know, land nav, right? Yes. <laughs> One of God's special little children that too stubborn to take co-ed badminton or bowling or, you know, something involving nicer smelling people. I have to take map reading out in the woods with the army to avoid PE. <laughs> now, at the time, I, I already had a propensity and an interest in the military. I liked the army. I liked ROTC. They liked me. The 1980 Olympics did not happen. And I was at that caliber of of competition. So what are you going to do? If you stick around and wait for 84, maybe uh, I would have been a 24, 25 year old <laughs> older sprinter. This was before Michael Phelps and, and others. And gee, ROTC will give me a scholarship and I don't have to put my face in water for three to four hours a day anymore. Hmm. Tough choice. <laughs> wow. So that's how I got involved with it you. found you. We found each other. Yeah. I liked it. They liked me. I was pretty good at it. I, I, I managed to cram uh, four years in, of college into five years and graduate and went on active duty and did 22 years of active duty service. Did you ever think that you would not be a career person? All in the, the time. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, when I walked in with the commission, I was very excited and proud to be serving. I looked at it with, hey, I have a three-year obligation of active duty. Then I can get out and get a master's degree, maybe go teach college because I enjoyed teaching history. But I had this deal. I said, well, I'll keep doing it until it's not fun anymore. And as a young officer, I was in armored cav units and we did border security on the east-west German border. So it had a real world mission of being up close and personal, this close. You know, we're four or five feet away. Yeah. Wow. So if you were an Eastern German border guard, I would be on my side of the border and there's the East German on the opposite side. So I got to see the wonders of socialism up close and personal. Hmm. Did that for three years. And then I was assigned to a cavalry squadron in South Korea, about six kilometers from the DMZ in Korea. And that, again, you get to see communism, socialism up close and personal. Do you have a favorite story from that time? Oh, <laughs> there are a lot of them. I, I think. The amazing dedication that the soldiers had, you know, numerous funny stories. There was one of those moments of being the dumb lieutenant. Hey, it's snowy out. We're on the border. It, it's really rough terrain. We'll do a cross-country ski patrol. So we had to train for weeks <laughs> on how to be proficient at falling on command on our cross-country skis so we didn't inadvertently cross the border. And we had to train and get physically conditioned and then wait for the snow and weather conditions to be right. And we did a 26-kilometer track and ski patrol. So 
the armored personnel carrier would tow us behind on a long rope and we'd be bouncing around on this <laughs> snow covered road and we'd go and we'd ski for a couple of kilometers and then we'd be towed or we'd take a break and got done after a very long day. And the next morning they blew us out on alert, which was okay. There's something that happened or there's a training exercise and we ended up spending three days in the field, and I felt like I had physically contracted polio because everything hurt from my earlobes down because <laughs> of all the, the muscles. All the skiing, yeah. yeah. All the skiing. <laughs> that was a very humbling time. But you do a lot of stuff when you're young. You look back at it at 59 and go, I don't know how I survived that when I was 24. Right. But, Were you in a relationship back then? No. You know, I Because I, a lot of guys get married... No. Right. You know, our son's graduating college and it's an ROTC program and the guys that are going and the girls, they're all engaged right yep. now. A lot more benefits <laughs> 21, if they're married. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I was, as a young officer, I was a, a committed bachelor. You know, I, I didn't get married until uh, the early 90s when I was teaching ROTC up in Minnesota. That had to be a lot less, probably stressful is not the right word, but... That extra worry of having, you know, a family or a person when you're out. I got assigned to the border cavalry, so I knew I was going to be out on the the, the grins patrolling, mm-hmm. and, and I knew that it was going to be high operational tempo. And I was a platoon leader, so I had my forty troops that I was responsible for, and then I became the longest serving platoon leader in the troop and then in the squadron and then in the regiment. I was the senior platoon leader 26 months as a platoon leader. Was that a choice? Not mine. <laughs> somebody's. It was very good developmental because mm-hmm. I had a lot of time to, to learn how to be a better officer and a better lieutenant. And back then a cavalry unit had tanks, armored personnel carrier, and improved tow vehicles. So you had three different major weapon systems plus a mortar track for a lieutenant to command. And 40 troops with all the different MOSs plus the border and and the knowledge we had to have. So it was very dynamic and didn't really have a lot of time. I chased a lot of women, but I was not very good at catching them (laughs) and not very good at long-term relationships. And where did you go from there? Went to South Korea, commanded a cavalry troop uh, for 16 months in South Korea. And that was its own challenge because of you walk into a country where the alphabet is totally different and it's a phonic language that is foreign. It's just a tonal language. It's different mm-hmm. in how it, you know, the Korean language is a, is a scientifically constructed written form language. And Great. You know, I'm, I'm a smart guy. I'm functionally illiterate. I can't read the signs. Now, the other thing, I'm six foot two. So put me in a room. You're with, a giant there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. See if a little brown headed people <laughs> get on the subway in Seoul when I'd be in there. And it, I, you blended. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> you bl- right. Stuck out. <laughs> I had a friend who was a, uh, a ginger, you know, very pale redhead. And, you know, <laughs> he was even taller than me. So it was easy to find him in crowds. <laughs> How'd you make it back stateside? When I was done with my year and a half in Korea, the army said, okay, you know, back to the States, we want you to go uh, be a observer controller at the National Training Center in 29 Palms or, or the Great Desert near, uh, Las Vegas. And I said, okay, wait, wait, border cab for three years, 
Kev in, in South Korea for a year and a half and now the desert. Who did I piss <laughs> off? And why? What, what have I done wrong? I said, no, we like you. Okay, like me a little bit less. Put, put me someplace where I can you know, have a life. Well, we're putting you there because you're single. Okay, border cav, <laughs> Korea, you know, you're know, you not giving me many options. What am I supposed to do, marry a, a desert tortoise? <laughs> anyway, I ended up getting assigned to ROTC in uh, Mankato, Minnesota. I was an ROTC instructor for what's supposed to be a short assignment. You might remember it was in the history books. The Cold War ended and we won. Right, right. We had that about mm-hmm. six weeks of peace and freedom. Mm-hmm. The Army, interestingly enough, went from producing uh, where we had a mission of you will make, create eight cadets who become officers per year plus one nurse. That's the floor. That's the minimum to by the end of my assignment is, well, you may commission one nurse if he or she is very exceptional. But what about the cadets? No, we're not commissioning any of this year. Just give them a certificate that they completed it. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, fast forward. After the Pentagon attack and we were involved in Iraq and Afghanistan, the Army was short on majors. That's because we didn't produce them as lieutenants back in 1993. Wow. It takes 10, 12 years to grow a major because you don't just grow them overnight. Yeah, especially probably a lot get out before they even get to that level. Right. Yeah. I never thought about that. It's kind of like, you know, farming. You have Mm -hmm. to kind of nurture and you have to, it's a formula. Right. Well, and there is the, the Army in the past has grown officers quicker, but there are trade-offs. And you might have some people, they can read and, and they get the knowledge out of a book, but experience, that's harder one. Mm-hmm. And tempering people for the challenges of leadership and being a good staff officer and knowing the intricacies of logistics. You know, and things that I learned as a cavalry troop commander, I had the, the headquarters troop. So I had all of the cooks, bakers, candlestick makers, mechanics, the headquarters guys. So I learned things like, okay, if you have to feed a thousand men, you know, how many eggs do you need to, what weight is the food got to be? Right. And what's the average servings? That's what you're doing is guessing and estimating. And you have to have a certain amount of excess. And you need to have a certain amount of flexibility in moving resources around to meet needs because people are not where they're supposed to be. Gene, you were one of those cooks. Oh, right? Yeah, that's, yeah right. that was bad. <laughs> that was my first job yeah, when yeah. I went in. Yeah, I got out of that the first year. <laughs> now, see, if I understood right, Gene was an MP, mm-hmm. military police. Mm-hmm. And cavalrymen and military police, you know, she's on the other side of the bar here. So that's a good. <laughs> and, and if I see the nightstick coming up, I know I'll just <laughs> take the knocks along the head. Yeah, I can hear what you're saying because, you know, those uh, second lieutenants are always the least experienced, not just leaders, but in the home platoon. Yep. Sometimes you got, you know, the enlisted have a lot more knowledge and experience than they do coming in and they're in charge. And that was always an interesting thing. (laughs) It's an interesting dynamic. And I had good sergeants, good NCOs that gave me counsel, advice and training. And we were also emphasized because I dealt with a lot of Vietnam era cadre who trained me as a young cadet and as a young officer. And it was, you're going to be the noob. Mm-hmm. You know very little. Yep. So be humble, learn, make yourself tactically smart, and ask a lot of questions. 
So, for example, if you're working on a tank, take one part of the tank, study the TM, study the, the tank with your sergeant, and then go talk to the soldiers and ask them to show you how to do something. Because you know how it's supposed to be done. But don't go there and try and show them how to do stuff mm-hmm. unless you really know. The phrase that I remember as a cadet was learning the profession from muzzle to butt plate. And that's mm-hmm. reflected back to the musket. The muzzle being the front end mm-hmm. of the, the rifle and the butt plate being the, the part that goes up against your shoulder. And you know the totality of that system. The more you know, the better. And listen to people. Yeah, that's, you know, we've been running a business or 18, Eight, 19 years. Going on 19 yes, years yeah. now, yeah. And I think that has been the biggest growth for us is learning how to lead people. You know, when we started, it was just us. And mm. now we have a staff of 11, wow. 12, and two front desks. Mm. So, and it's it's pretty humbling. And, you know, we learn usually because people leave, <laughs> you know, and then you kind of try to figure out how do you do it different? How do you do it better? But, you know, I never even thought about going to a formal training of how to do that. Well, and, and you know, we've also done tactical training with, you know, Marines and, mm-hmm. you know, that whole concept of, you know, leading from the front versus leading from behind. And, right. you know, it is, it's something that's applicable all throughout our lives and all facet of our lives. Right. So, yeah, I, I kind of hear everything that you're talking about mm-hmm. and, you know, it's just resonating really well. Do you have children? Yep. Did this impact how you were as a, as a dad? Oh, I think absolutely. And my daughters have helped me be a better dad and a better leader. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody overcomes some sort of family of origin issue. Uh, you know, Foo Fighters is a band, but, you know, Foo Fighters is everybody because we're all dealing with some sort of family of origin issue. Mm-hmm. My father was a uh, very hot-tempered son of an alcoholic who was also a not well-regulated diabetic. So I lived in a very mercurial environment mm-hmm. with a very demanding guy who was an aeronautical engineer. So real smart. He did math for fun, something that I have no knowing clean up. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> so I ended up with three daughters and, you know, I was a little more directive, a little more, there were a lot of challenges. And my one daughter, when the oldest basically said, I don't like the way you're handling this. I don't like the way you're you know, talking to me or treating me. And we had a good frank discussion about it. And I had to step back and figure out a better way to be a dad. And I feel like I had that sort of influence on my dad after, you know, once I was already grown, you know, he was a pretty reactive type of guy. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a tool and die guy. Same thing. The math is really smart. And he, you know, he was the guy and nobody else was the guy, you know, and I really feel like there, I have eight siblings. Wow. So I feel like I was really raised by the military once I got there, you know, because there was so much chaos and stuff in my childhood. And that's where I learned self-discipline and self-respect and how to, you know, take care of yourself and the areas around you. It changed my life and it changed my my outlook, my self-esteem and my my personality a hundred percent. I used to be like a shy girl. <laughs> I was a Boy Scout in Northern California uh, in the late seventies. Uh, so in the the era of peace, love, drugs I was the short-haired guy who went camping when I wasn't at swim meets. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed beer. 
And otherwise, you know, body is a temple because it was back when they would do doping tests on athletes and you never wanted to get disqualified because you had an illicit drug in your system. So then I got into ROTC because I was too stupid to take a co-ed PE class. <laughs> and the Army doesn't like drugs. That worked out for me. I could still drink beer. <laughs> I found you know a certain home in the military. It matched a lot of the expectations that I had on honorable service and doing the right thing. That mirrored my up- upbringing as a mm-hmm. Boy Scout, and that resonated with me. You know, I, I was comfortable in the Army. The thing that I found in the Army is you had so many different personalities and so many different people with so many different backgrounds that you would never have. From all parts of the country. Yeah. 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 And you you had the redneck from Oklahoma with uh, the dinner plate belt buckle who's in the same, same uh, scout vehicle as the kid from the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And you'd think that these two would just be beating each other up because – you know, one's a cracker and the other one's a real slick city kid. And they give each other crap, yeah. gratuitous crap, but they're there for each other at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's neat. How did you make your way to the Pentagon? Well, legend has it that in the, the freeway coming from New York City into about Delaware, there are these deep ruts in the road, and that's where my fingernails deployed, and they dragged me kicking. <laughs> so, um, you know, you heard earlier that you know, I'm a cavalryman. I like being on the border and leading troops, and, and I ended up, when the Cold War ended, I ended up becoming an Army spokesman, and that got me back to Germany. And I got back out in the field, and I was doing what I called muddy boot public affairs. If there was an opportunity to go to some foreign country, you know, my hand shot up, get me out of the headquarters, I'll go. Albania? Sure. How do you spell Albania? I'll go there. Africa? Yeah, put me in. So I was the deployable captain. And I found out I was pretty good at the public relations and, and being the Army spokesman. And because I was willing to go into less developed environments where other people liked working in the embassies and the headquarters, I was happier working out in the field or in a headquarters that was deployed someplace. Because I was doing that, I made a name for myself. I got promoted and I got selected for a a stint in New York City, working in a public relations firm. It's a training with industry uh, sabbatical. And I did that for a year. And then I ran Army Public Affairs New York. So Midtown Manhattan, New York-based national media, you know, all the morning shows, putting soldiers on Letterman, doing first pitch at Yankees games or Met games or things at the stock exchange. It was high visibility, fun stuff, Mm -hmm. fluff. No, marketing. Yeah. And I did well there. And then they said, if you have a real cool assignment, then you have to have one that really sucks. So we're going to take you from Midtown Manhattan and we're going to make you work in the Pentagon. (laughs) (laughs) So, And you didn't want to. Oh, I... Whined, I sniveled, I pled, I cried. <laughs> How many years were you in at that point? That was uh, summer of 2000. So I was in right at about 16 years. And you go from being the big fish in the little pond to the little fish in the big pond? Well, I, I was the army fish in the New York City pond, mm-hmm. which was still kind of cool. Yeah. Because New York City, if uh, it was an amazing place to work and it was a nice time to be in New York, people were very interesting and accepting. And there was always something going on, even at four in the morning. And then you go 
take a personality that doesn't like being confined and in cubicles, you know, working on spreadsheets and say, okay, now you have to stay here in this office and answer questions about army personnel policy and human resource issues. (laughs) (laughs) And oh, by the way, you're leading a team and the, the span of things, anything involving an American soldier, whether it's a investigation, court marshals, army weight control, women in the military, don't ask, don't tell, drug policies, army suicide policies, chaplains, and uh, religious support, if it involved soldiers, my team and I handled those. So, uh, And you were making policy? No, no. We weren't making anything oh. except press releases. Oh. Other, other people made and owned policy. You, you just were had to tell reporting them on it. Messenger. Well, <laughs> so the news media would contact us. New York Times would call up or Associated Press or any of the Pentagon Press Corps or national or international news and say, you know, we have a question on this situation and we need to have somebody. It's two o'clock now and you need to have an Army spokesman ready for our six o'clock news show to answer on the record. And, you know, normally that was a hard swallow because, okay, I have four hours to find this person, get them mm-hmm. ready and get them on the air. And there was a certain amount of negotiation. You know, we, we had people, since my team and I handled a lot of medical issues and none of us were doctors, we ended up working with the medical, our counterparts in the, the medical services to answer questions. For example, um, during uh, the summer of 2002, there were murder-suicides at Fort Bragg. And they involved in, there were five instances of murder, murder, suicide, and three of them involved soldiers who had been deployed to Afghanistan with special forces and who had come back, who had then had a problem with their spouse or domestic partner and domestic partner died. And in two of those cases, the the soldier then killed himself. Mm-hmm. And I have to always legally say allegedly killed themselves because it's presumed murder-suicide until the MPs finally mm-hmm. come up with the, the finding. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the Army policy on murder? We're against it. What's <laughs> the Army policy against suicide? Yeah, we're against suicide. That's glib. But what, what are we doing to help prepare and make soldiers and military families more resilient? So suicide is not seen as a viable option. Especially after deployment. Right. And then you had a reporter, there was a fellow from Reuters who had a theory that uh, larium, which is uh, mefloquine, which is a prophylaxis against malaria, it it crosses the brain barrier and causes... Uh, Depression, psych- suicidal psych- ideation. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. psychosis, and, mm-hmm. and it can lead to suicides. Mm-hmm. I was given that. So was I. Yeah. I, I would like to know actually what I was actually given all those years ago. You know, you'd stand in line and they'd shoot you in both arms and you don't know. Uh, I, no, I never had that happen. <laughs> yeah. And being the, the fellow who was the spokesman explaining that according to you know, the studies that were available at the time, you know, mefloquine is a safe prophylaxis that's caused people to not come down with malaria, which can kill you. So... Maybe some people have a bad reaction to it, but the, you know the preponderance is fine. Mm-hmm. But if you take and you say the Venn diagram of okay, here's post traumatic stress, here's TBI, you know the traumatic brain injury, mm-hmm. and mefloquine to- toxicity, and you take what are the common in the, those intersecting circles of overlapping symptoms. Now, is it caused by mefloquine? 
toxicity or is it TBI? If you've had a hatch whack you on the head and if right. you have diagnosed PTSD and you've been given mefloquine. Then it's the chicken or the egg at that yeah. point. Yeah. Okay. Well, trifecta. Yeah. So 22 years of, you know, <laughs> shaken, not stirred. <laughs> What's causing the problem? Don't know. Yeah. So it, it is interesting that, you know, and I think this is true in our society in general, we have, we're drowning in information but we are lacking in knowledge, in wisdom. And so people have a lot of opinions from a very small perspective. Mm. And, you know, this is just one factor of all of those things. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And given what's in the news in the the past 96 hours about the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. and I don't even know what to call it anymore. COVID-19. (laughs) COVID-19 or coronavirus, or is it the Wuhan virus? Or it's like, okay. The, you know, the, the bug is your. And that's got to be interesting for you not being in the in the heart of it anymore mm-hmm. and hearing it like we do and wondering what's well the, really going on. The Yeah, the, the Washington two-step where, and not to interject politics, but, you know, some folks, no matter what they do, they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, there's no way to win. Yeah. And I don't miss... DC, I don't miss the Pentagon in that regard. I worked with some really fine folks while I was there and a lot of very dedicated Department of the Army civilians and the news media, especially in the aftermath of 9-11, when they realized that they were in the building and somebody tried to kill them right alongside us, that they took a little offense to that. (laughs) So take us to that day. Okay. The thing I can tell you about September 11th is it was a beautiful early autumn day where it's that first time, you know, we're here in, in Northern Illinois, August, September, you get those hot muggy days where it just feels like the asphalt's going to melt. And that was one of the first mornings where I, I remember waking up and it was clear and it was crisp and it was, I want to play hooky. I want to go play golf. Mm-hmm. I just don't want to go to work. It's a Tuesday. I got to go to work. I'm in the Pentagon. Normal schedule of calls. We have a team of spokesmen for three different sections of the Army staff. My team and I handled personnel and human resources, so people issues. And there was ops intel and logistics, the oil team, and weapons environment technology, the wet team. So they handled their respective parts of the staff. We had had a very long, detailed team meeting between the team leaders and our media chief talking about what events were going to happen that day. And we came out of that meeting little TV on my desk with a news station on, initial reports out of New York City that a plane had hit a World Trade Center. Developing story, we don't know what kind of aircraft. You know, it's happening now. There was a certain amount of, hey, boss, need to turn on your TV. Something's happening in New York. And there wasn't panic, but there was bad things happen to good people. And... In that job of being a military spokesman, if you have a one in a million chance of something bad happening today and you have 1.3 million soldiers on active duty, every day is your day. And it can be absurd things. It can be heartbreaking things, but something weird is going to happen today. And, okay, something bad is happening in New York. We made sure that folks, my assignment just before the Pentagon was working in New York, I called my friends up in New York and made sure that they were aware. The office that I had left made sure because something happening at 8 a.m. That's 
you know, the Army's done its physical training, had their shower, gotten cleaned up. They're having a cup of coffee and getting started with the, the paperwork part of the day and just making sure that folks were aware. Like millions of other Americans at 9.03, we had a big screen TV in our team area. It was on watching it, the reporting because now the story and more cameras are on it and saw the second plane hit the tower. And I remember just that instant realization of, okay, it's either the laws of physics have suddenly changed and large aircraft are attracted to tall buildings or we're under attack and that's deliberate. One of the civilians on my team, young lady named Elaine, was nine months pregnant. She'd hit that point of pregnancy that uh, the doctor said, baby is fine. You know, any day, any time now, you need to relax. You're allowed to please have one glass of wine <laughs> every day and you can have coffee. There's nothing you can do. The baby's fine. That's, she was that preponderously pregnant, you know, short waddling phase. And I remember turning to her and looking at her and saying, get your stuff and go home. I want you out of here. It's like, well, no, why? We're going to be busy. You know, you're going to need me. And Elaine was a great person, very hard worker, very conscientious. I said, no, I want you out of here because we're next. And that was just a hunch. Mm. But it was, wow. they're going after, you know, the, the phrase that popped into my mind at the time is they were going after signature targets, visible mm -hmm. symbols of American or Western power and might. And the Pentagon's one of those. She made it out of the building safely. Her son is uh, starting his, I think, sophomore year of college now. Wow. Uh, her son is named after a mutual friend of ours who died in the attack. Mm. So, and, you know, she was a great lady. She uh, did not listen to me. I told her to go home. She went down the hall to the in-house Starbucks and got a cup of coffee for herself and one for me and was coming down the hallway. And the impact of the plane hitting the building knocked her off her feet. Mm. Wow. Some naval officers scooped her up and got her out of the building. At 9.03, we saw the second plane hit, and that was very sobering. We went into starting to think about if New York City calls for help, what can we send? What are they going to need? And because I had worked in New York City, I got asked to uh, go to a, a meeting. It's called Domestic Operation Military Support, because we have to have a long title, but it's <laughs> like Hurricane Katrina. Okay. We can't send federal forces into the state of Louisiana or in Mississippi until they're invited by the governor, because that's civilian control of the military. States have the right because it's they're a sovereign nation or a sovereign body. But we can prepare so we can line up troops. We can have them on standby waiting to go. And we nobody had told us to send troops to New York, but we can start thinking, okay, if New York needs help, what are they going to need? Well, they're going to need medics. They're going to need MPs, military police. They're going to need engineers. They're going to need trucks. What else are they going to need? Start thinking about it. And uh, there was a meeting at 930, and I was a major. I'd been working in the building about 14 months. And, and you got to understand something about the size of the Pentagon. It's huge. There's five floors above ground, a couple of basements. There are five rings that... The outer ring is E-ring, inner ring is A-ring. There's a center five-acre courtyard. There are 10 radiating corridors from that center courtyard, 17 and a half miles of corridor. And so if you imagine five, wow. five layers of essentially kind of like a spider web layout, but, you know, they're nice, neat, concentric. So you could almost run a marathon in there. 
Not me. I don't run. <laughs> Someone could. Someone could. could. No running in the halls. Um, <laughs> lots of generals, lots of admirals, very state, very, you know, it, it was a headquarters. It, it handled policy. It handled decisions about Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. There were interagency coordination cells from other governmental agencies, about 20,000 folks working in there. I Again, I'd been working there 14 months. I knew my way around the building because it takes a while to get comfortable navigating all those hallways. So my office was 2E636, second floor E-ring, corridor 6, room 36, which that alphanumeric tells you the address, but it also tells you how to get there. Go to the second floor, get to corridor 6, walk out corridor 6 to the E-ring. Once at the E-ring, room 36 is less than 50, take a left. Look on the left side. That's where it's going to be. 1D541, first floor D-ring, corridor mm-hmm. 5, room 41. And, and if you have that alphanumeric, it's fairly easy because it's a quarter mile across the Pentagon. And you can walk from point to point in five to seven minutes at normal pace. There was an Army Lieutenant Colonel, Henry Huntley. He had been there for about six weeks. Nice guy. And, and, you know, the visual of Henry is think of Denzel Washington, but a little bit taller, a little bit more muscular, and a lot more handsome. (laughs) Deeper voice. And Henry's the new deputy chief for the media division. He's my counterparty's uh, operations intel and logistic team leader. And Dom's is his issue, but I'd worked in New York, so I'm going along as a subject matter expert. And we're walking on the E-ring, the outer ring of the Pentagon, second floor from corridor six, where our office was. And we go around the corner, corridor five, and then between four and five, the new wedge has just been renovated. And there's a construction wall and door blocking the corridor. And we stop at the door and I was like, sir, where are we going? Well, it's a conference room off of corridor four. Okay, sir, what's the address? Well, I don't know. It's a conference room. Sir, five floors, five rings, lots of options. Who's hosting the meeting? Well, I'm not sure. Okay, sir. (laughs) You don't know who's hosting the meeting. We don't know where we're going. It starts at 930. It's now 930. We're late. Let's go call and find out where we're supposed to be because different floor plan. It's new wedge. It's just been renovated. I don't know where everything is. Well, he listens to me. We turned around. We walked into one of the sub-basement areas off of Corridor 7. And when the door clicked shut behind us, the alarms went off. And Sergeant looked up from the security desk because it was a operation center. And he said, gentlemen, there's been an explosion. You need to evacuate. Really? Well, where would that be? Where's the explosion? It's by the helipad, Corridor 4. Where you guys were. We had been. So and, if I'd been. And you didn't hear, see, we, or we, feel it. No. Wow. It was probably in one of the safest rooms you mm-hmm. could be in in the Pentagon at that point. Wow. But if I had not been me and being stubborn and saying, sir, where the hell are we going? And we're now late. And just like tonight, mm-hmm. I show up a couple of minutes early. It's mm-hmm. ingrained after a couple of decades of service. If you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. You're late. If you're late, you're not acceptable. (laughs) Now, six weeks later, Henry reminded me of that. And he's like, yeah, you know, by the way, my wife said, thanks. Oh, why? Because, you know, if you hadn't been such an ass that we would have been wandering around on corridor four and we probably would have been hurt or killed. That's where the bulk of the casualties were. How many died? 125 in the building, 55 uniform, 70 uh, civilian. 
Uh-huh. And uh, the thing is, the Pentagon is a legitimate target in that, that old law of war uh, methodology. But the method of attack, uh, because there was another 59 folks on the aircraft, innocent men, women, and children, mm-hmm. uh, the youngest being, I think, two and a half, three-year-old who was on a trip with her family. You know, the the bad guys figured out a way. They couldn't build a bomb big enough, so they stole something and used it in a way that we were not prepared for. Yeah. And there was no law enforcement or military response that day that really had any difference. There was a lot of things that happened, but the FAA doing a clear skies and ground stop, <laughs> everything that's flying, I mean, 4,400 aircraft land now. And getting all those airplanes down and sorting out, getting them on the ground and, and just taking that platform away from the bad guys as a method of attack. Um, you know, there's an, uh, an evil elegance that they figured out a way to use our understanding of domestic uh, hijacking. Because the last one that had happened in the United States was the late 70s, early 80s. And it was always more of, I'm taking this aircraft because I want these conditions mm-hmm. met. Here are my demands. I want I want to live as the hijacker. The bargaining tool. It was a bargaining tool. Right. right? It was political theater. Mm-hmm. And when they took the aircraft, they incapacitated, killed the, the flight crew. So there's they were the, the only people who could handle the aircraft. And they had deliberately chosen the aircraft that had large loads of fuel for transcontinental flights with light passenger loads so they wouldn't be interfered with. And with the exception of Flight 93, you know, the surmise is that they had enough muscle on the aircraft to keep the the passengers that remained and the flight crew that remained cowed. And everybody was thinking, hey, if we just go along, we'll land and we don't want them to set off a bomb because if we do what they say, we'll, we'll live. Sure. So they send you home. Oh, no, I was there. Oh. <laughs> I was running in and out of the building, you know, the, the, the Boy Scout uh, first responder, hey, there are people who need help. We're missing people. Get accountability for our people because as a leader, you have a responsibility to your people, for your people. And then there are just others who are in need. And I ended up uh, being on the end of a stretcher, running in and out of the building, carrying people out, helping get more medical supplies out of the building. Do you know, do you know these people that you're helping out? No. Okay. Because it's a pretty big place. Yeah, yeah, 20,000 of my closest friends. Mm -hmm. You know, being inspired by others, having the moment where even then I was a big guy, had bad knees and didn't run a a whole lot because my knees were already screwed up. Run as much as I could run that morning. I was walking back into the building on the corridor eight, which is the north parking entrance. And the security guards were going, ape, they're yelling at us, get away. There's another plane coming. There's, well, they'd been yelling that at us for a half hour, 45 minutes. And I was about 50 feet away from the quarter eight entrance. And all of a sudden I heard a jet engine screaming in low and fast from behind. And by the time I turned my head and lifted up, there's a jet fighter at 400 feet at about 400 miles an hour. And it was beautiful. It was, you know, the roar. The glint of the sunlight off of the reflective surfaces and thinking, oh, God, that is so pretty. That's a jet fighter. That means somebody's looking out for us above. Mm-hmm. We are good. They can't They can't get us, you know, we, we got air cover and being happy. And then several <laughs> weeks later, finding out that 
that fighter pilot is having a conversation with her wingman about, okay, if we get ordered to knock down a suspected hijacked commercial airliner and we have no guns because we don't have any bullets for our cannon and we have no missiles for our rails, so how do we best kamikaze into a suspected hijacked commercial airliner? Do we dive down into the cockpit from above? Do we come at it from below? Do we clip off the tail? If we do that, you know, is it going to fall onto a school down below? You know, how do I do this without killing myself? Wow. wow. And, and, you know, her <laughs> Lieutenant Penny, her, her nickname was Lucky Penny. And I remember just that, that sobering, you know, I was happy to see her mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and didn't realize that, you know, I mentioned that the military and the law enforcement really didn't have any tangible impact on stopping that from happening. Well, there was no precedence for it. Right. Well, yeah. and, and somebody asked me recently, because I, I, I talk about my experience. I'm, I'm vastly more comfortable talking about it now than I was in 2004 when I first started doing public speaking about this. Why didn't they have missiles? Why didn't they have ammo? Because that was the rules. You know, you don't, you don't give ammo because bad things can happen mm-hmm. and there's that reluctance and it's even going on in uh, combat areas where, oh, you got to control the ammunition because mm-hmm. somebody might do something stupid. Okay. Well, there's this gift to decide. Do they die because the bad guys have <laughs> weapons and ammunition mm-hmm. and they don't, or do you take the risk and train them well? And, and I think we've made that better decision. And there are still problems. Sure. Fort Hood, right? Well, the Navy Yards. You know, Fort Hood was, you know, that that was a gentleman who had his own little jihadist moment. It wasn't, as as I recall, it was uh, his privately owned weapon that he wasn't supposed to have. Right. You know, there and then. You know, there's been discussion about, well, you, sh- you should let soldiers conceal carry. Mm-hmm. And when I was a young officer in the early 80s, we had the the first generation of soldiers coming out of the draftee army and we had drug and alcohol problems and there were uh, unit wide arrests and, and busting of, of drug rings. And it wasn't uncommon for the officers to be armed mm-hmm. just for their own protection. Was it every day? No, but you got comfortable with it. You, you treat people like grownups and you know, I never had an incidental or accidental discharge. What was what was your takeaway from that day, and you know how has it impacted you, you know, from since then? When you you look at what happened and all the people who did amazing things to do the right thing to help other people, and whether it was people who put themselves at risk or in danger to help other people, or who went out of their way unexpectedly. I remember getting into the center courtyard and I saw a you know, five acre inner courtyard of the Pentagon is kind of an inner sanctum. Mm-hmm. And here's a Catholic priest in a, in a full long cassock. And he had the, the stole around his neck, the purple ribbon. And he was running around and doing Catholic priest things. And he was talking to people and I was like, okay, one of my accounts was the chaplains. I know the army chaplains in the Pentagon. He was not an army chaplain. Mm-hmm. I didn't make it over to talk to him and found out later on he was heading to a uh, veteran's funeral at Arlington National Cemetery, had seen the plane hit the building, and he decided that he just needed to be there. So ministry of the presence, go and be wow. there with people who are in need. In need. And 
scene, since we're talking about chaplains, I'm in the inner courtyard. We made it back in and, and we had lined up in search and rescue, aid and litter teams. There's a medical triage point that had been set up. And this was all self-directed by survivors who had just said, no, we got to do something. Nobody was ordering us to do things. And I kept seeing all these chaplains that I had worked with over the past year and a half or so. And I was like, you, you went to Fort Hood. What are you doing here? Well, I was in Crystal City nearby, a mile away for a promotion board. We heard the impact and we came over here. So there were all these wow. folks who ran in the Army B uniform. So it's a short sleeve polyester and wool. Melts real easily. It's not too comfortable. <laughs> not really good looking either. But they, you know, they ran in a group over to the Pentagon to be there and to help, you know, to, to share in the risk and, and to do what they could. Nobody ordered them to. You, you saw a lot of people doing absolutely the right things with the best intention. At one point, we were running out of medical supplies, and this was before the jet fighter went overhead. So I was running back in and out of the building to get stuff out of the in-house clinic. And this soldier, young specialist, uh, he was in camouflage, the battle dress utility. So he was a support soldier. He comes out proudly carrying this prep tray that was the in-house clinic. And I was carrying a couple of oxygen bottles. We took whatever we could that wasn't nailed down. And we get out there and, and he walks up to the nurse and he, you know, here, ma'am, I got this tray. And she goes, oh, this is great. Thank you. You appreciate it. And as she turns away, she turns to another nurse and says, oh, it's a pap smear test kit. <laughs> Which undoubtedly had material that was usable, but it was not configured for the, you know, the one of the oxygen bottles that I was around was totally empty. I don't know. It doesn't have a gauge. I'm not a medical person. Right. Just doing what you can. Right. What was it like to walk back in? Probably one of the more meaningful moments for me. My my day one was on September 12th. I, I was a team leader. My team and I handled personnel and human resources for the Army as far as communications. So we did the um, casualty notifications. Was this a choice to go back that day or were you? Oh, I'd been told that, Ryan, you're emergency essential. You know, okay. Battle dress utilities tomorrow morning by six o'clock, if not earlier. <laughs> I lived in Northern Virginia, about 25 miles away, got up out of the house about 4.30 because I anticipated an hour or so drive because that's normal for 25 miles. I made it there in no time at all. The streets were empty. It was me and a couple of state troopers out there. <laughs> and I got to the Pentagon. You crest the hill, coming down into the bowl, and there's the Pentagon. The west side of the building is still on fire. So you can see they're spraying water from the, the boom, you know, the big water monitor and there's not raging fire, but it's glow and smoke coming up. The center part of the building by corridor three is black. There is no power. It's like section of blackness. And then corridor two, the main pedestrian entrance off of South Parking is amazingly lit up. And it's, they've got those trailer mounted light sets where the booms go up and it's really lit up. And there's South Parking and it's empty. I was like, great. I get to park close to the building. I don't have to walk too far. I go to pull off and the MPs motion me and the security guys, nope, parking lot's closer. You need to go park in Pentagon City and walk in. So the other side of 395. And I park my car. I walk in the pedestrian viaduct underneath the interstate. Now I'm in South Parking. And it's 20 or 30 
cars that are parked there. And the realization is that those are people who couldn't or didn't go home last night. The building's on fire. It's without power. And there's corridor two. And I'm in my camouflage fatigues and I'm walking across this abandoned parking lot. And it's men and women coming out of the darkness. And it's pre-dawn. And there's folks in blue jeans and work boots have a blazer on carrying a bag. And everybody's just quietly and deliberately walking to corridor two. And as they get closer, security stopping people and checking IDs and inspecting bags. And there are bomb sniffing dogs that are sniffing folks. And when we go into a, a line, climb the stairs up to corridor two, and there's, I call it the Shrek line, where it's the, the ropes where you go back and mm-hmm. forth, lined up to go through security <laughs> and have our bags inspected. There's a magnometer to go into a building that's still on fire and without power. And again, there's nobody yelling at us and and barking orders. It's just men and women, all services, walks of life, all races, and just there because that's our place of duty and that's what we were supposed to do. Doing their jobs. Yeah. And that, you know, very proud of that and it's very humbling. You know, the, the people that did things to help other folks on September 11th. And that spirit kept going for weeks and months afterwards. The Pentagon in the late Clinton administration was a very staid, standoffish, don't ask, don't tell, God's sakes, don't be inappropriate. You know, everybody's watching. And after 9-11, you know, you'd see somebody that you knew and you hadn't seen them since before September 11th. And it was, oh my God, I'm glad to see you. It is so good to see you. And, you know, getting a hug by a Department of the Army civilian or, you know, senior officer, you know, okay. You know, it, it, it's it's a nice feeling. It sounds like there was a lot more unity yeah. afterwards. Yeah. And, and, you know, my day one was September 12th. Elaine was out, you know, she was told, hey, don't come back until after the baby. Take Take your time. So it was four or five weeks before she came back. So her day one was, you know, I, I, I had to remind myself her healing point is starting now. I've already been here. I, I've been this close to it. The atmospherics in the building was, there was a lot of soot in the air. There was a heavy smell of smoke and fire in the air. A lot of environmental problems. We didn't have any building services. So there was no food services. And the, Fortunately, put together out in South Parking, a thing called Unity Village, which started off with uh, companies and nonprofits just showing up and saying, hey, we're here to help. Whether it was in you know, nearby Costco saying, we've got flashlights and brooms and shovels. What else do you need? Hmm. Uh, men's Club out of uh, Tennessee Baptist Church showed up and they said, you know, we're award-winning barbecue cooks. And Tyson sent them a, a semi-full of ribs and chicken. You know, the irony was, you know, you're having smoked meat and barbecue. <laughs> but Haynes, uh, yeah. you know, Haynes sent a semi-full of socks and underwear. Why? Because you have guys and ladies who are working on search and rescue and recovery, and they don't have time to get cleaned up. But if you have time to change socks and underwear, you know, that can make a huge difference yeah. in quality yeah. of life and being able to do your job. Yeah, it's an amazing perspective because most people are having their experience of what the world is like through their TV or their phone or whatever. And you're seeing snippets of not good stuff. That This kind of stuff doesn't get reported and the humanity that shows up and the 
you know, whenever you read about things like the Holocaust and how people would be starving, but they would still share, you know, human beings are very, basically very good people, you know. As individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Put them in the herds and they get kind of stupid. (laughs) But getting to see people at their their very best, you know, and, and there was funny stuff that happened. There was stuff that you just kind of shook your head and go, okay. The amount of effort that was going to helping other people. There was a, when we'd made it back into the center courtyard, I mentioned we set up an aid and letter teams. So I'm on one end of a stretcher. There's a, another fella. He was a reporter for the Washington Post. So the irony of having the army spokesman on one end and the reporter on the other <laughs> end. And uh, he pulled out a pack of Marlboros and I, I asked him nicely, please give me one so I can, you know, have a smoke and I don't have to hurt you. <laughs> and we lit up and we're standing in this smoke-filled courtyard because the wind is coming from the west and it's just blowing and curling over. And at times you couldn't see three feet in front of you. And this, I, I had a magnetic quality that I would attract angry little colonels. <laughs> and this little angry colonel appeared from nowhere and he's like, gentlemen, you're smoking in a no-smoking area. <laughs> that's filled with smoke yeah and right. like, sir the only clean air i'm getting is being dragged through this butt so, you know. <laughs> there was a, a naval officer and uh she was about five foot two five foot three short short uh shoulder length brown hair and wearing a black long sleeve sweater because the pentagon is an office building you have a lot of older chunky males who have to wear you know uniform so it's september-ish so it was refrigerated. So a lot of people wore jackets just to survive the day. She's in a knee-length skirt with nylons, because that's the uniform. And she walked up to me and she said, I need your T-shirt. Give me your T-shirt. And I don't know Navy rank. Okay, fine. I figure you outrank me. You're not asking nice. So I take off my uniform blouse. I take off this nasty, sweaty, grimy T-shirt that I've been running and sweating in. Hand it to her. She thanks me, turns around and walks over to the Ground Zero Cafe, which is the center of the courtyard. And I'm putting my uniform shirt back on. And she dunks my T-shirt in a bucket of water and pulls it over her head. So she's got her face coming out of the armhole, and she's wrapped the rest of the T-shirt around her hair. And I'm now worried about her because it's like, (laughs) this is not logical. I go, I tap her on the shoulder. You okay? What's with the T-shirt? She goes, yeah. Flash burns. I'm on search and rescue one. Oh. And it's, you know, me being the, the student of military history, if the big ship catches fire at sea, everybody becomes a firefighter. My tank catches fire. I pull the handle for the fire extinguisher. If it works, great. If it doesn't, I walk. If you're at sea, you fight the fire or you swim. And if it's 600 miles to shore, you know, welcome to the triathlon from hell. Because mm-hmm. So... She just didn't want her hair to catch fire crawling around in the the ruins of the Pentagon looking for injured people. Mm-hmm. Now, at that point, the fire was so hot that the firefighters in their firefighting gear with the, the face plates and the, the breathing gear couldn't stay in the building for more than a minute or two. So the chances of us getting in, but her willingness, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and did I mention she was wearing... Skirt, a skirt, right? Nylons, and nylons yeah. short heel pumps. I mean, those are ugly shoes, but you know, God bless her for. <laughs> <laughs> How did this impact you long term? I was there in the building until two thousand three, 
and my team and I had the duty and the honor of doing the casualty sheets. So we would work with the personnel folks to make sure the next akin had been notified and all the notifications were done. And then we would get the names released to the, the media. And that's one of those tough things that's part of the job to do. You're seeing names of people that you know and that you had interacted with at various points over your career. We also had the honor of working with the families and supporting them if they were willing to talk to the media, preparing them for news media interviews, and then being with them during the interviews and essentially being body armor for them and saying, okay, we're done. Interviews over. And the news media was pretty good. There were times where the the family would say, okay, I'm done. I'm not doing any more talking. And the news media would have its arc of stories. So they had done the initial report about the, the loss. They had talked to the family at the memorial service. They had done one month later, hey, it's now Thanksgiving. You know, can we, you know, and the family would say, nope, not interested. Oh, but we really need this story. What part of no are you not listening to? Ain't going to happen. And then having to chastise media who weren't being respectful. And it wasn't really adversarial all the time. Most of the media got it. Getting what we called the survivor hero stories, because there was a lot of really good stories of people putting themselves in harm's way, helping other people, prepping them and getting them to share a really rough day. Because there's survivor's guilt. You know, at one point I had made it back up from the Army Operations Center up and made sure my office was clear. All my people were out of the building. Major Elaine wasn't there. Made sure that other people were out. And I, I got to a point where I was heading down that E-ring and uh, was still clearing offices. Hadn't found anybody. A security guard behind me was hollering every time he saw me. Hey, sir, you need to evacuate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then a big roll of black smoke came around the corner. And next time he hollered, hey, sir, you need to evacuate. It's Okay. You know, I'm not wearing anything that's going to help me survive going into that. I need to go out. And and making that, it was absolutely the right decision to do that still bugs me to this day. You feel bad because who was, you know, one door down or who was around the corner that I could have, had I kept my head down and been a little more gritty, helped. So you were pulling people out? At that point, I hadn't found anybody. Okay. You were just looking. I was just looking. When I got to Corridor 8, that's when we had more injured coming out of the building. And this is where the diagram of the Pentagon comes in happy or help, uh, handy. handy. If this is Corridor 4, the side of the bar that I'm at, you're in the courtyard. Ray is over at Corridor 8. Injured went from C, B, and A rings. And there were injured from all three of those rings. And D, they went into that center courtyard and out corridor eight, because that's where the medical clinic was in corridor eight. My office was over here on six on a different side of the Pentagon. I came out. I saw the side that had been hit. I went to corridor eight to find my people and get accountability. Mm -hmm. And that's when I got involved in running back in and out. We had 70 to 80 folks, stretcher cases. We had people that we took them out of the building took him up on the uh, parade deck where the Secretary of Defense would do his receptions where he'd greet dignitaries. And that was the helipad that they flew the lifeline helicopters out of. But our challenge was 
we had a lot of injured coming out through that center courtyard corridor eight, but all the the ambulances and everything was on the side of the building where the fire was. Hmm. And yeah. they had a lot of people there, first responders, with we had the bulk of the injured over on the north side. So it was hard to get them connected. Yeah. Right. Hmm. How did that experience that day affect your own relationships in moving forward? Well, I'd mentioned that, you know, previous to the Pentagon uh, working in Europe, whenever there was an opportunity to get away from the headquarters and go someplace muddy boot, you know, I volunteered to go to Africa in 94 for the Rwandan refugee crisis. So it was me and a couple hundred GIs with our international force friends with 600,000 Hutu refugees who had been part of a genocidal civil war killing the Tutsis. So we're there in uh, lava fields underneath an active volcano with, you know, post-Civil War genocidal militias and trying to keep them alive. And there was a lot of uh, waterborne disease and death and privation. And then ending up spending six weeks in Kigali, Rwanda, where the genocide had taken place. And dealing with the UN forces that had been through that and survived that and the American embassy folks that were still around and reconstituting and running the airfield operations. Then being on the first plane of spokesmen into Bosnia in December 95 before the uh, Operation Joint Endeavor started. That was the separating of Bosnian, Serb, Croat, and Muslim forces. Mm-hmm. It was before the genocide there. Well, no, it was after the genocide, but it was getting them to put down their weapons and move back from each other. There were other things, you know, I mentioned Albania. Going into a Marxist communist country that is just so screwed up, uh, you know, seeing uh, people rioting for bread or the street urchins beating up on lesser fortunate street urchins. If somebody gave one a piece of bread, the other kids would beat him up to take the piece of bread from the one. In the Pentagon, there was a, a certain amount of frustration because you've trained for so long to do your job. And the job that you're called to do is something different. You know, there's the moral injury of seeing your nation hit and seeing people hurt and feeling, okay, I failed my job and doubting yourself. While I was in the Pentagon, I was very busy for the next two years. I got selected to move out here and open up an office in Chicago, which was a neat and exciting job because it was more towards my liking of away from the flagpole and away from the generals and doing what I had done in New York. But I was going to be on my own and my boss. (laughs) Suddenly, I was out here by myself, and I was the guy who had been in the Pentagon when it got hit. And, and I'd ask, you know, how many other Pentagon survivors have you met? There are 20,000 of us. It's a fairly finite world. When people would ask me in 2004, after I'd moved out here, hey, you're in the Pentagon. What was that like? And I was nowhere coherent in being able to talk about it. You know, I had anger and survivor's guilt and a lot of mixed emotions. Uh, falling in and working with the uh, Pentagon, or excuse me, the uh, World Trade Center survivors, a nonprofit in Deerfield called Willow House did a great job working with us, the survivors. You know, they were men and women who were there on business trips and had no expectations that they were going to be in a life-altering day. And there they were dealing with a lot of the same emotions that I had, being very afraid, trying to do the right thing, seeing people who are hurting, 
seeing the firefighters walking upstairs, knowing that they're not going to make coming it. back. Yeah. You know? So working with the World Trade Center survivors was good for me, but I ended up trying to be the lifeboat captain. Mm-hmm. You know, their needs were more important than mine. And finally, one of the counselors at Willow House said, okay, you know, you need to take a knee. You need to go and do some individual therapy because the group stuff is good for you, but you're not where you need to be. Did you go to the Willow House by choice or was that something that? I was doing my job as an Army spokesman and uh, was at an event. And one of the fellows at the event who knew me from previous he goes, hey, I found there's a World Trade Center survivor. Do you want to meet him? Well, like, yeah, I do. <laughs> this is a fairly finite world. So uh, I got introduced to Joe Detmar, and it was down at uh, Naperville where they have the Shanauer Memorial. And it was May of 2004, and Joe gave me a great big bear hug. And he's like, here's my business card. Give me your business card. We need to have coffee. I want to talk to you. And I was on the run because I was escorting an Army officer who was visiting Chicago for my job. And then through Joe, I got introduced into Willow House. And it was very comforting going. It was extracurricular. They they had funding that the FBI and Homeland Security was providing for the program for the World Trade Center survivors. And oh, by the way, we have this army guy. <laughs> that was quiet. My spouse at the time didn't understand, well, this upsets you. Why are you going there? And I tried to explain, no, this is very helpful. This is good for me. Well, no, it just, you know, you have bad nights as soon as you come home. Mm. Well, you know, (laughs) that's part of it. You have to go through it. Right. And, you know, my, my spouse at the time, it was a lot of profound issues with our relationship. I also had undiagnosed sleep apnea problems. So I wasn't getting, when I was sleeping, I wasn't getting the restful sleep. Mm -hmm. I was still doing a fairly high pressure job and I was dealing with being now out and being asked about the situation and trying to figure out how to best talk about it. So, by the way, in 2007, right after I got out of the Army, I was diagnosed with stage 3B throat cancer in the tonsil. Um, So I went from, hey, you know, congratulations, you're retired from the Army, and oh, by the way, now we're going to take out your tonsils, and uh, we're going to do a big modified neck resection and take a big hunk out of your neck. You're going to go from a baritone to a bass, <laughs> a little smoky rasp to the voice, right. just for, you know, the cool, sexy. <laughs> you now my body was trying to kill me, but I came down with a low percentage type of cancer that only African-American males who are lifelong heavy drinkers and smokers come down with in their seventies or eighties. Wow. I was 40, lucky you. Yeah. I was 40 something. Yeah. And white. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 <laughs> they uh, can't see on the radio. Yeah, I understand. Good point. <laughs> if you could say something to those 20,000 people that you worked with in that building, what would you say? Well, the, the vast majority of them wouldn't know me from anybody. The ones that I worked with on a day to day basis uh, were still in touch. The beauty of social media in, in the electronic age. You know, the, the biggest compliment I got was. After leaving the Pentagon, when I'd go back to visit, uh, and until I retired in 2006, I'd often have to go back because I still worked for Army Public Affairs. And invariably, either the reporters that I had worked with, oh, great, you're here. I got a question for you. I'm not working this account anymore. I didn't, nope, nope, talk to some, no, I need you to explain something to me. <laughs> so they, they, they still saw 
my value. And there was the joke of, hey, Ryan, we got your desk. You know, we, phone number's not changed. You can pick up and start answering. Nope, <laughs> I don't want that. So there, there was an acknowledgement of my skills and abilities as a spokesman, but there was just an understanding. And those of us who were in the Pentagon together on September 11th, we're still in touch. We pay attention to what's happening to each other with each other. You know, there are some people where you just have to, you know, if they want to play tug of war and, and they keep wanting to tug at the rope, try to hold on as long as you can. But pretty soon you just lay it down and say, well, when you're ready to talk, I'm ready to talk, but I can't help you right now. It's neat and it's humbling. Out here in, in Illinois, I get very excited when somebody says that a fellow from Crystal Lake is fiance was a, a department of the army contractor and was there that day and i'm anxious to meet her just to hear what her story was because i'm fascinated to hear and i love one aspect when i meet people who weren't at the pentagon invariably i hear i remember where i was and what i was doing from them they everybody knows where they were mm-hmm. what happened yeah. it's you know time dilated and everything moved slow and and they were absorbing a fellow named Tom Van Cleve out of Batavia was a travel agent and he had his own agency and he knew that he had folks traveling in New York. So he got on his systems and he started, okay, who's where, who's this, where's this? And started laying on and reserving rental cars. And then when the rental cars ran out, he started reserving U-Haul, the individual moving vans, the little ones, wow. and the DHL, the, the small ones. Then he started getting creative and saying, okay, Joe, you're going to pick up the, the U-Haul van. You're going to go to this corner and you're going to see a guy with two lawn chairs and a cooler. That guy's name is this. <laughs> He's riding back with you. <laughs> wow. Because his focus was on yeah, helping yeah. people. Mm-hmm. You know, you had mentioned that so many people see it through the TV and there are other people that they got so busy doing their jobs and helping others. Uh, the Union League Club, downtown Chicago, it's an old wood paneled club. You'd think, you know, so, you know, they have guest rooms, they have people, international business travelers. The word came about 9-11 and what was happening in New York and D.C. and elsewhere Downtown Chicago became a ghost town. Everybody reversed, commuted, and left. And he's the manager on duty. Uh, the general manager is driving in as quickly as he can, and he's got 14 people and needs 30 to run the place at full capacity. And he's got 87 guests who are now stranded. Mm-hmm. So, he, okay, team, we need to have a talk real quick. Everybody who can come, all right, we have guests in our house. If you have to go home, go home. I'll understand. You know, we need people here to take care of our guests in our house. You know, we are the Union League Club. And except for one, everybody stayed. And that's neat. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, people understanding that other people need help and making a difference. What would you say to anyone out there that, you know, may have been there that day or have been, you know, survived the, you know, the trade centers and are struggling? Right. Don't do it alone. Survivor's guilt and don't, yeah, yeah, don't do it alone. You know, you know, John Wayne is a, a, is an actor and you can't do it by yourself and there's no, no need or reason to do it. You know, my, my website, you know, my name is kind of unique. So if you do ryan.yandis at gmail.com. Can you spell that? R-Y-A-N 
dot Y-A-N-T-I-S at gmail.com. And if there's somebody out there that's hurting, that's a survivor or a family that has not gotten the help that they need, reach out to me. There are also other agencies with professionals such as uh, yourselves Mm -hmm. or Willow House or, you know, even the VA. And a lot of people give the VA a hard time. When I got to the point of needing help from the VA, I had survived the Pentagon. I had survived having throat cancer. I was in the middle of a highly contested and nasty divorce. And I went to the VA. And the first doctor that they sent me to was Middle Eastern. And he was probably a fine doctor. But I walked in and I said, Doc, I'm not a risk to myself, you or anybody else, but this is not going to work. I need to have somebody else. Well, why? What have I done? You haven't done anything. This is not going to work. And he was a little put out that I said that, but I had to be comfortable to be able to talk to him. And that's my problem and my prejudice. And they got me with another counselor and worked through a lot of the PTSD issues. And it was not quick. You have to work at it. Anything you want to get in life requires work. And if it's real easy, you're either really, really lucky or you're not doing it right. I think that's a really good point that if you do seek help, and it doesn't fit well for you that you should, you should, you know, take your power and do that and find someone else that does. Yeah, absolutely. You have to feel comfortable yeah. with the person you're talking to. Yeah. Well, you need to take ownership of it. Yeah. You can't just walk in and say, hey, Dr. Ray Jean, it's, you know, I got this problem. You got to fix me. No, you know, mm-hmm. the real healing and fixing has to come from within and you have to want to get better, but you have to take the steps. And it's just, you know, we started talking about leadership uh, at the beginning. You know, leadership's a learned skill. Mental health is a learned skill. We get knocked around physically, mentally, metaphorically throughout life. And sometimes we are off kilter. If you want to get better, it's just like physical therapy. You got to work at it. You can't just say, hey, I want my knee to feel better. No, you got to put in the the weights and you got to put in the the strength training to make it more resilient. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So. We 100% agree with that. Yes. Yep. Ryan, we want to not only thank you for being on the podcast today, but thank you for everything you've done for this country and for our freedoms. Your tax dollars at work, and most of it was fun. Some (laughs) of it really, really sucked. You know, people have been sharing stories since the beginning of time to bond and heal and grow. And we hope that by you sharing your story, it's enriched your life and the lives of our listeners. Um, and, you know, I, I have gotten much more comfortable in sharing my story. There's stuff that still bothers me and I still work through. You know, one of the, the, the amazing things is uh, is I'm involved and married to a great lady who's very patient with me, very supportive. And, you know, while she won't come on the podcast and talk about relationships, mm-hmm. that's good enough. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> well, I'm going to take a picture of this cool uh, underground uh, pub studio that you all have. You know, she has been instrumental in helping me heal and being much, much happier and more centered. And that makes me a better dad. It makes me a better businessman. It makes me a better leader. And if that makes me better, you know, I'm good. You know, that's one thing that we know is that as therapists, we can help people to a certain degree. Hmm. And it's sort of like being able to shine a 60 watt light bulb on an issue and start a healing process. 
But when you have a bonded partner do it for you, hmm. it's like a football stadium. And that is exactly the work we do. That's what we teach people is how do you help your partner heal through what life has thrown at them? Because we've all had it. Yeah. And, I, and I think also, you know, if, if there's anything we can pull away from your story today and, and everything that you've been experiencing in your life, and that is that... And we've said this many times before that in the end, the only thing that really matters are the relationships that we have with people. The neat thing about Sharon and I is at one point when we were, we'd been friends and we started dating and we were starting to get serious and we got to know each other even more. And it was like, well, wait a minute. You know, we had these similar shared experiences growing up as kids, even though I'm six, seven years older than she is like the same sort of foods and I was wait are we cousins somehow distant <laughs> and I was, uh, doesn't matter very very uh you know the germans have the the word gemütlich like it's it, very comfortable when you're with somebody and there's still good positive energy but it's not the frantic nervous energy of it's very comfortable it's very supportive and that that uh, has created a, a great deal of quiet and solid uh, solace in my life and i hope i do the same for her and we try to be there supportive for each other not competing with each other so i'm a very lucky boy wonderful Thank you uh, to all our listeners out there for joining us for a couple synergy. Again, if you want to get in touch with Brian, we'll be including his contact info in the show notes. Our passion is in helping people have happy and healthy relationships. And this podcast gives us a fun way of bringing our knowledge and expertise to you, our listeners. And if you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please download it and share it. And thank you for listening. For all of you listening, please subscribe to our podcast and please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or topic suggestions, please email us at contact at couplesynergy.com. For more information about Couple Synergy and our programs such as Relationship 101, the Couples Weekend Intensive, which is coming up in October, and our premier program called Couple to Couple, look us up online at couplesynergy.com. Until next time, synergize your life and synergize your love. You have been listening to Couple Synergy with Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Couple Synergy was recorded, edited, and produced by Dr. Ray and Jean Kedkodian. Voiceover and music entitled Breathe and Let Go was recorded and composed by Gina Gonzalez.